This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Being a mom on Halloween can be pretty hectic, but a group of Fairfield moms are taking the spooky season by storm. They're dressing up as zombies and taking the town in their infamous flash mobs. The Mombies is a group of moms of all ages that have been coordinating to Dance to Donate since 2016. They have raised over $170,000 for breast cancer research to date, and their dance videos have been seen by millions. Throughout October, these moms are putting on their zombie finest attire and are participating in epic dance performances across the state. And joining us now to talk about the life of a mombie is Marnie White, mombie and professor at the Yale School of Public Health, and Cheryl Kraft, mombie and health writer. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. And just a quick note for our listeners that we are pre-taping this conversation on Friday, October 27th, because as you can imagine, the Mombies are a little busy on Halloween. But you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Marnie, I want to start with you. Can you take us back to the beginning? How did the Mombies get started? Absolutely. Um, the Mombies were started by our friend Terry Davis, who um, whose children were elementary aged at the time. And we live in an area of Fairfield, which is um, celebrated. Uh, Halloween is really celebrated um, a lot. Uh, major decorations, very, very crowded streets. No traffic goes through there because the streets are just swarming with children. Um, so, she thought at that time it would be a really fun idea to have the moms get together and do a spontaneous flash mob just to entertain the children. Um, and it was really, that was all it was intended to do. That year, we ended up going, or actually the, the mombies, I wasn't in the original uh, performance, but um, that year, uh, social media being the magical thing that it can be, um, the mombies got a lot of attention. Um, their videos started going viral. People who were just in the crowd taking videos would end up posting on social media. A lot of local newspapers picked it up, and it was just sort of a fun, whimsical celebration. And so now the but streets Terry, are swarming with mombies now. <laughs> absolutely. So that's, uh, yeah. So um, Terry is is a, a very creative genius and also a philanthropic soul. And um, a friend of hers had recently been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and had started the foundation, The Cancer Couch. Terry was very inspired by this and thought that it would be very wise to take advantage of our popularity and celebrity and see if she couldn't turn into something good. And that's when Mombi's Dance to Donate was born. So in the second year, 2017, she started crowdsourcing and um, turned Mombies into a charitable organization, a 501c3, and started linking donation posts, um, very much in the spirit of the uh, ALS Ispeka Challenge. Um, and, and it's been very successful. So every year we do a new dance. Um, someone in the crowd posts it to social media. The videos take off. And that drives donations, and that's been the the model. And so far, um, we're up to one hundred and eighty thousand uh, dollars in donations to the Cancer Couch, and every one of those dollars is matched by a private donor. Wow, that sounds amazing! And and what a movement! And and how did you all become to know each other? Like I know you mentioned that it first started with you know just the moms in the neighborhoods. How did it get expanded? 
I can speak to to my personal case. Sure. Um, the, Terry Davis had originally invited you know, other moms in the elementary school and some moms that she knew through her children's baseball team and things like that. I, on the very first day of open house at the elementary school, overheard someone say, are you going to do Mombies this year? And I immediately whipped around, grabbed her wrist and said, please introduce me to Terry Davis. I'm dying to get into the Mombies. Uh, and that's how I managed to you know, weasel my way into it and uh, have been a very proud participant ever since. Well, you just gave me an image of, of you sort of whipping around like a zombie as they were. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the creepy yeah, hand exactly. grabbing the, the wrist of like, take me with you. Right, yes. exactly. Which is how you should... Have that's how, that's how you should start anyway. Uh, and Cheryl, you know, how did you get started? Let's talk about your your OG story becoming a mommy. Uh, yes, well, I a little bit different. Um, although I am a mom, um, my children did not grow up here in Fairfield. They grew up in another town in Connecticut, and I moved here as an empty nester. So I was not connected to this group of moms, um, but I had always heard about the Mombies and I had always run to see their performances and just loved what they were doing, um, but didn't really know how to get involved. So um, by chance, I met a Mombie, just an unrelated reason. Um, and in passing, I learned that she was a Mombie and I was fascinated. And I said, oh, I'd love to dance. I, how can I be a Mombie? And she said, well, I'll see what I can do. And then I kind of got busy and she got busy. And it, it, two years later, I got a text from her one morning and she said, we have an opening. You need, do you want to still do it? If you do, you have to tell me um, within the next half hour because it goes fast. So um I, it took me about 30 seconds to make up my mind and I wrote her back in all caps. Yes, I would <laughs> love to. And so my mommy was born this year will be my first year. And I am just adoring it. It's just so much fun, so much hard work. And it is for such a wonderful cause, which is very close to my heart um, as a breast cancer survivor, especially. Well, congratulations on your inaugural Mombi moment. So happy to <laughs> be able to announce that here. Very big deal. Thank you. Uh, well, and you mentioned that uh, it's a it's it's a close um, or it's a special. There's a special meaning for you being a part of this as a breast cancer survivor. So, can you talk about you know why is being part of this group important to you? Obvious question, obviously, but tell us about why is it so unique. Well. There, there are many reasons. Um, most selfishly, of course, it's that I love to dance. Um, and when I was going through breast cancer, um, dancing was one of the things that I could still have, um, that I, I might have lost a lot. I lost my hair, I lost my breasts, I lost my choices in a lot of ways, but I did not lose my ability to dance. So um, it, it was very front and center of my life. You know, even though I was going through chemo, I would put on my wig and put on my leotard and sneakers and get out there and be like anybody else. And it made me feel alive. 
Um, but for a larger reason, um, it's, I've lost many, many friends to breast cancer, and I've gone through their journeys with them personally. So I, it really feels that I must do something to help other women um, and hopefully prevent this in the future um, from it happening to them. And, you know, you look around a room of 50 of us, and certainly I'm not the only one. And I look out into think about the audience who's watching us. And certainly there, I am not the only one. So it feels like a very um, widespread cause that we are all part of, not just me. Well, and Cheryl, you're a health writer and you have an essay that's being published this week in Everyday Health about your breast cancer journey and also your experience as a mombi. You want to read a paragraph from the essay? Sure. Uh, just bring it up here. Okay. Uh, when I was being treated with chemo for breast cancer in 1988, one of the few things that helped me get through was dance. My hair and my breasts may have been taken from me, but I refused to let my love of dance stop me. I needed to keep moving, mainly to prove to myself that I could. Each Monday and Wednesday, I'd carefully place my wig over my bald head, my sweatband over my forehead, and pull on my thong, leotard, tights, and leg warmers. It was the late 80s, after all, and we all wanted to look like the queen of aerobics, Jane Fonda. I headed out to the gym where I stood tall in the front row of the hour-long 9 a.m. aerobics class, keeping pace with our peppy teacher, Donna, while stomping on cancer, chemo, and fear with grapevines, lunges, and straddles. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Cheryl. I love that you mentioned Jane Fonda because when you were describing your yeah. your leotard and your socks, she was the first image that popped into my Absolutely. <laughs> and and Marnie, can you talk about more where the these donations specifically go? Because we know this area of cancer research is probably one of the most underfunded areas. Um, so where does the donation go specifically? Correct. Um, all of Mombi's donations or Mombi's driven donations go directly to the Cancer Couch Foundation. And the Cancer Couch is a foundation that um, exists exclusively for fundraising to for the purpose of metastatic breast cancer research, a stage for metastatic breast cancer research. The founder of the Cancer Couch, Dr. Rebecca Scalera, um, was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer conceptualized this foundation from her hospital bed, and um, it has grown, uh, raising millions of dollars now to donate directly to Memorial Sloan Kettering and Dana-Farber researchers at both institutions. Sadly, we uh, lost Dr. Scalera in 2019, um, and many mombies were very close with her. So this is a very much a, um, a project of love and devotion and grief and hope, um, and really, really changing the landscape of metastatic breast cancer um, through these donations. 
And I think a different landscape that you're changing to is the way that these donations are being donated by taking to the the streets with your dance skills and your costume yeah. skills and your makeup skills. So I wanna I wanna pivot a little bit and ask about, you know, this is this is something fun and for a good cause and but a lot of work goes behind that. You don't just magically <laughs> like I, I always picture like, oh, you all just magically can can do this. But there's a lot of rehearsing and preparation that goes into this. So, Marnie, can you talk about what does that look like? And and I'm, I'm thinking you're all having to get outside of your comfort zones for this as well. Oh, certainly. Yes, um, we, we are not dancers. I specifically cannot dance, um, you know, lifelong mockery for not being able to move. Um, but so I just occupy a spot on the back row and, uh, and, and throw myself into the role. Um, but the rehearsals start about seven or eight weeks in advance. Um, and then about two weeks, three weeks before the performance, we get into a state of collective panic and figure out additional times to rehearse. And so we're meeting in people's basements and people's driveways, anywhere where we can kind of get together in secret mm -hmm. because of course the actual dance still has, we're trying to stay true to the flash mob feel or origin. So we don't disclose the the songs that are that we do as the mashup. We don't, you know, they're different moves every year. So we try to retain the element of surprise for our kids and families primarily. And then, um, and then, so these last couple of weeks have been intense with added rehearsals and driveway dancing, and we'll just get a text or a WhatsApp of like, you know, you know, surprise driveway dance today at my house, please, someone come dance with me, come practice. Um, so it yeah, sounds it's very James Bondy. What's that? It sounds very James Bondy. Oh gosh, yes, yeah. The the secretive element is a lot of fun too. So the, those first few years, um, there was some mystery around whether or not the mombies would even be doing it. So we would um, all lie to our families um, and say that we were going out to bunko or choir practice or oh gosh, no, I have to go take an extra shift. I'm working, and you know, uh, and then all of a sudden appear in the middle of trick-or-treating. So you know, the first year I was able to do it, my child was about, I think he must have been six, six years old at the time. And so I made up some flimsy excuse for why I couldn't go trick-or-treating with him, which was ridiculous because Halloween is my holiday. I've always made elaborate costumes for him, gone way over the top. And then all of a sudden I was missing trick-or-treating. Well, being six years old, he didn't connect the dots and he's out there trick-or-treating with his dad. And then all of a sudden... Boom, there's mom in the middle of the mombies flash mob. And the child was just <laughs> stunned and so happy that his mom was doing the 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 infamous thriller dance. And when he's writing his autobiography, that's gonna be a whole chapter. <laughs> there might be some scars. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Cheryl, you're laughing this whole time. I love hearing it. Tell us your experience about rehearsing and prepping and getting into this role. Well, um, I think I am the oldest mombie. Um and I, I try not to think about that because I say I can do this, um, but I'm kind of sneaking in um, visits to physical therapy for my poor aching knees, um, but I'm doing it. And um, I'm, I'm challenging my body. I, I mean, I've always worked out. I always try to stay in shape, but it's, it's, it's very challenging. Um, but I'm doing it. It's a lot of fun. In the beginning, I almost quit a hundred times because I would come back from practice and say, 
oh my God, I can't learn all these steps. And it, it's such elaborate choreography. How am I going to remember that this comes after this and what comes after this? And, and, and I don't know if my knees can take it. And I was just overwhelmed, but I was really determined to stick it out. And sure enough, um, every time I practiced, the muscle memory got stronger and stronger. And I found myself thinking about it in my sleep and hearing the music and thinking about the moves. And when I, I love to walk, so I would go on walks and I wouldn't put on my podcasts or I wouldn't put on music, but I'd rehearse the steps in my head as I was walking. So it, it became really a part of me um, after a, a short while. And um, I became just totally enmeshed in in what we were doing. Um, and sure enough, I learned it and my knees are taking me where I need them to take me. And it is just all coming together and it feels wonderful. Well, we are very happy to hear that you're continuing with it. I'm sure you bring a lot of joy to to those around you and yourself, I hope, by doing this. And absolutely. And, and you know, you talk about immersing yourself into this role and and I know Marnie has mentioned it as well. So, I want to ask both of you, you know, how have you bonded in doing this? Can you talk about the friendship or relationship or just the gentle you know, feelings that you get by being a part of this? Now, let's start with you, Cheryl. Um you know, being, being a freelance writer, um, my office is in my home. And this is before the pandemic. I have always worked it, at home. And it's a very solitary um, job. I sit alone all day. I'm in my own head all day. Um, I, I, I sometimes have other writers who I converse with. But basically, it's, it's very lonely. Um, and um, this has opened up my, my life so much because I am with a huge group of women who are all new to me, um, which was a little bit outside of my comfort zone, coming into a group um, and being the newbie. Um, but the women have been so warm and wonderful and welcoming and made me feel part of things from the beginning. And um, little friendships kind of um, are spurned from different different groups. Um, even though it's a big group, you kind of find certain people that you bond with, which has happened. And um, it's been wonderful. Everybody is there for a common cause and we all help each other and feel, feel the, you feel the love, not to, not to make it sound too woo-woo, but you really do. You really can feel it. And what about it's, you, Marnie? Can you feel the love? Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, you, you end up bonding with the people in your row because you've stepped on each other yeah. several times throughout the rehearsals. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on some of my very best friends in town that I met through the Mombies. Um, and were it not for the Mombies, I don't know that we would have, you know, had the good fortune of 
of getting to know each other so well. Um, so it's it's been a continual blessing on so many levels. And just, you know, and I, when I think about the many challenges that so many people have had, both with respect to, you know, pandemic-related challenges and also just the collective grief and loss that everyone feels with respect to breast cancer specifically, this is a way to take altruism and which is you know obviously intended to benefit those around us but it has a very specific positive benefit on one's own mental health and there's just so much research that shows that doing good for the community doing good for those around you ultimately ends up really helping you and it's a wonderful feeling we get this amazing adrenaline rush after the performance but also you know many mombies are crying after that performance mm -hmm. realizing that we're touching other people that we you know we're doing it for the people who are going through it right now we're doing it for the families of of those who are grieving um we're 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 trying to bring a smile to people and 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 to 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 help those around us who are who are afflicted by this horrible disease. And yeah, I, you know, to jump on that point, sure. um, there there is this feeling of helplessness, not only when you are diagnosed, but when you stand and watch people you love die. Um, and it, it's it's a terrible, lonely, helpless feeling. And being part of this just helps me feel like I can really do something about that helplessness in a fun, creative, bonding way. Um, and, and it feels really important and really good. And Marnie, so how does someone join the Mombies? Currently, they should send an email through the Mombies website, which is www.mombies.org. On the lower left-hand side, there's a little email icon that'll send an email address to Terry. Um, I, I know that her inbox is flooded with these requests, um, but I think that she might be working on some ideas for how to expand it. So currently, we are capped in terms of the number of Mombies that are able to participate every year in Fairfield. But really, that cap is only because we don't have studios big enough to house us all. You know, maybe if she were able to find a a university gym large enough to house more of us, maybe it could be even bigger. I don't know. But uh, right now, you know, it, it's limited. But I think that if I know Terry, she's working on a way to accommodate all these requests. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if anyone out there is listening and you have a space for for this chance to uncap the Mombies, now is your time. Uh, is that <laughs> is that also the same website that people can find for more information and to donate? Absolutely. There is a donate link, and that links directly to the Cancer Couch donation landing page. And also last question for both of you, um, because this has been such a fun conversation, but we cannot... Uh, leave this without asking what are what are your processes of getting dressed up as a zombie if you can tell us you know what kind of zombie are you dressed up this year do you have a personal theme or a group theme or what does that look like let's start with you marnie i have changed my theme every year and as of this moment which is you know t minus six hours before the first performance i have not decided i have several outfits hanging in my bedroom i had my child vote on his favorite this morning and currently i'm running a poll on instagram 
entitled Help Mombi. And I have no idea. Um, I'm probably going to go with the classic um, funeral attire uh, gown with pearls and and a, and a fur stole because um, I feel like that is the most classic to the Michael Jackson thriller video, as mm-hmm. though I've just arisen from my own grave. But I was uh, going to say that sounds uh, very classy, very classy. Cheryl, what about you? <laughs> I am going to be the hippie mommy, um, kind of takes me back to my day. And um, it's been really fun finding the clothes and being creative with with how I want to look. And the most fun is is preparing the costume and cutting holes in it and ripping it. And it's just it, it's a lot of fun to prepare um, to look like a zombie. It's uh, a lot goes into it, but it's all it's all fun stuff. So I will be the one with the floral headband and the poncho tie dyed and the, of course, the bell bottoms. And um, <laughs> that's me. That's awesome. I've already <laughs> seen her costume. It looks great. Well, your description of ripping the things apart, it sounds very therapeutic. And very zombie Very therapeutic. Very zombie-esque. <laughs> well, thank you so much. want to give a, sh- a huge shout-out and thanks to the Mombies, Marnie White and Cheryl Kraft, for being on our show today. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for featuring us. Happy Halloween. It'll be a thanks. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Happy Halloween to you both. And after the break, we hear from the Watkinson Library Rare Books Collection and learn about some of the earliest depictions of witches. What's happening where you live this Halloween? Let us know. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashanker, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashanker has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready, so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. What's happening around where you live this Halloween? You might have heard about the Connecticut Witch Trials, which sometimes is called the Hartford Witch Trials, 
It's one of our favorite topics to dive into here on Where We Live. But did you ever wonder what started all the panic around witches? In the Trinity College Rare Book Collection, you can see some of the first illustrations and books about witches. Those books spread a mass panic throughout Connecticut and the rest of New England during the 14th and 17th century. And joining us, or 1700s, joining us now to talk about this collection is Eric Johnson Dabofri, Rare Books and Special Collections Librarian from the Watkinson Library at Trinity College in Hartford. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can join the conversation as well. Let us know if you have any questions. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Eric, you know, I didn't know that Trinity had some of these really cool, rare books. So can you tell us about this particular event and these books? Sure. Yeah. So this is our premier fall event. Um, it's called Watkin- Watkinson Witching Hour, and it's going to be held today um, on the Trinity College campus from 3 to 5 p.m. Um, it's free. It's open to the public. There will be refreshments. Um, and importantly, it'll be an opportunity for people who might not otherwise um, think of coming into a rare books collection to see and also handle material uh, related to the history of witchcraft that was printed um from the late 1400s uh, through the 1600s. So um, uh, we hope that it draws people in. There will also be material on hand um, that's Halloween related uh, from the Trinity College archives that is pulled by my uh, colleague, Eric Stoikovich, the college archivist. And so what do some of these texts look like? You know, we'd love to dig a little deeper on on the history and, and, you know, what can people expect when they're coming in to see them? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you. So we start with um, some of the earliest material printed, um, two books, particularly that were really influential in the invention of witchcraft um, that were printed in the late 1400s to 1500. Um, there, uh, I have to say, the first of them, probably the most influential of them, is a book called the Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, that's a Latin a title that means the hammer of witches. So the writer uh, Heinrich Kramer imagined this book as being used to really smash out uh, witchcraft and witches. Um, And it's a very creepy looking book. Um, So I I hope that people uh, will get a chance to come in and see it. Um, It's, uh, as I said, these are both highly, highly influential texts in the invention of witchcraft for really different reasons. Um, the, the other book, um, a book by a writer named Ulrich Molitor, um, is the first illustrated uh, work on witchcraft. So there were no uh, books that depicted witches prior to his book, and his book got reprinted um, very, very heavily. And it kind of created the iconography of, of witchcraft. Um, you know, women around a cauldron, um, women uh, who are flying, uh, women who are engaged in carnal relations with demons. Um, so uh, both of these books, very, very, uh, very negative depictions of women, I should say, particularly the first book, The, the Malayas. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a little bit about uh, what, what, people can expect from those books. 
Well, and I think what's really interesting and also I think shocking, you know, in a sense is that there's an invention of witchcraft. And I, I think, you know, in, in contemporary times, I kind of just thought, oh, well, that's part of history. It's always been around, but it did kind of have to start somewhere. So does it come as, as a surprise that it came as early as in the 1400s and it's from this this one man apparently who really wanted to hammer this out? Yeah, yeah, it, um, you're absolutely right. It did have to be invented, um, even though Europeans, um, you know, all throughout the, the social uh, order believed that there were these occult, hidden, uh, magical, supernatural forces that were at work in the world, and that there were people who might be able to influence um, some of these forces and influence events in the world, you know, changes in the weather, causing crops to fail, um, uh, causing impotence in men. Uh, this is a big one in the Malayas. Um, uh, the idea of witchcraft itself, uh, like a coherent conception of witchcraft, had to be invented. And these books, um, these books played a, a big role in doing that. The Malayas does that um, probably the most, because it is, I, I'd say, of the two books, it is what it takes sort of the realist position about witchcraft. It believes that witchcraft is a real phenomenon. It's in fact, even though the church prior to this period had treated it as a very marginal phenomenon, Kramer, he wants to say, no, it is a central social problem um, that needs to be rooted out. Witches need to be investigated. They need to be exterminated. Um, and uh, probably the most pernicious aspect of, of the book is that it, um, it defines also who practitioners of witchcraft are. And for Kramer, they are almost exclusively women. Um, you know, prior to this, it was believed that, you know, men, women might, uh, equally, uh, be able to perform certain sorts of magical acts. Um, Kramer says, nope. This is almost exclusively a female problem, um, and uh, it has really lethal results for women in Europe. Um, the the other book, Molitor's book, it really takes what would be called an anti-realist position. It doesn't think that witches actually do have power. Witches are uh, they're they're people who think they're witches, but they're deluded. Um, they suffer from delusions that are caused by the devil. Um, and nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, even though it takes this position that these people are deluded, um, the writer still believes they are heretics. Um, and so they can be prosecuted for heresy, but he takes a much more moderate position to that of um, the author of the Malayas. Well, I think that's another shocking point to how intense the texts and these feelings uh, that they were during the time that it was written and created. And you mentioned, you know, we were talking about invention and also iconic images. And one of the, I think, iconic images that you see not only in the text that you're describing, but also, you know, picture books and, and novels are uh, witch, a witch riding a broom. So can, yes. you, can you talk about, you know, this? these books shows one of the earliest images of a witch riding a broom. You know, what does that look like at the time? And, and can you give us an idea of how that came about? Yeah, so um, so the uh, the book by Molitor is, is the earliest illustration that we have of 
of witches engaged in activity. And one of them, as you said, is um, in the book, there's a, an image of actually three witches who have transformed themselves actually into animals who are riding. It's, it's more of a pitchfork than a broom. Mm. Um, the broom, you know, I, I think the implement in some ways is sort of secondary, like broom. Right, it can right. be any sort of thing that you can straddle and ride. Um, but, um, but the important thing is, um, you know, this was supposed to be one of the things that the powers that witches were able to perform. They were able to fly. And why were they able to fly? Well, they needed to fly in order to attend um, what's called the witch's Sabbath. So um, there are certain elements that, um, you know, these texts start to reinforce about what all witches do and what what is involved in witchcraft. So all witches make a pact with the devil. Um, they engage in sexual relations with the devil, often at the witch's Sabbath. They're able to fly there to attend the Sabbath, which is presided over by the devil. Uh, they can perform harmful kinds of magic. Um, uh, and then they also engage in the sacrifice of babies. Um, so those are like the, the core elements that become stable uh, elements of, of what witches are in society. Well, that's quite the image to have it, on this very early, <laughs> creepy Halloween morning. <laughs> it's 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 not cheery. No, I mean, and you you know you can see that because uh, you know women are deemed to be the exclusive uh, practitioners of this. I mean, it's it's ter it must be ter have been terrifying for uh, women at this time to wonder, you know, am I going to be suspected of witchcraft? And we're talking, you know, you've been men talking details about the text, and we're we're speaking about the illustrations right now. And I'm curious to to hear, you know, how do these illustrations show a very sincere belief in witchcraft? Because you know, writing writing some writing words is one thing, right? But painting a picture literally is another thing. That's that's exactly right. Um, so it's sort of an irony that the book of the two early treatises on witchcraft that are very, very popular, reprinted many, many times. Um, I mean, so just to give you an idea, the Malayas um, is published thir in 13 editions in 35 years. So that's, you know, at a very conservative estimate, that's like 3,000 copies circulating among educated people, maybe more like five to 10,000 copies. The... Um, the book by Molitor, the illustrated book, Shorter, um, is printed in 19 editions um, in that same period of time, so an even larger number. It's ironic that Molitor's book, which takes more of a skeptical position about witchcraft, is the one that, because it's illustrated, the, the illustrations in a way have this life of their own, um, even though, you know, Molitor casts some doubt or skepticism on the reality of, of witch's power, um, those images have power, you know, and they get reproduced right. themselves in other books um, apart from Molitor. So they, they just start to form this powerful visual vocabulary for people that help them, especially people who can't read, um, know what 
what a witch does. Um, you know, there, there are these women who gather out in the woods um, around a cauldron, often, you know, sacrificing children, uh, drinking their blood, engaged in these horrific um, rites. And with, I, I'm amazed at how many printings it's went, it's gone through. And I imagine that printing is a new technology, especially at the time, um, it wasn't widely available for a while. So I'm curious to hear, you know, who who, who were the the audience? You know, who were the readers of, of these manuals, say, about witchcraft? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so um, you're right. The Both of these texts make use of this very newly available technology, the printing press, um, that hasn't been around for very long. That enables mass production and reproduction of these texts. Um, <clears throat> the the thing is, um, you know, literacy at the time is still at relatively low le levels, and there's even within the the band of people who you would call the literate, there's varying degrees of literacy from a really high level of literacy to kind of minimal literacy. You know, I can sign my name, I can, you know, read some very basic things. These books um, certainly circulate within the most educated circles. So I think it's important for people um, who come to, to understand that, that, you know, uh, witchcraft as a belief system is actually a phenomenon of elite print culture. You know, so highly educated people are the people who are circulating these ideas. It's not that you know, a kind of uh, uneducated populace is responsible for for this problem. It is largely a problem that's generated by elite uh, literate culture. And as you have these texts and illustrations on display for the public today and, and beyond today, you know, what are you hoping that this display will teach others about witches and this time period where we have people accused of witchcraft do you see any contemporary parallels to this time? I do. Um, I, so I'd say that the first thing that we really hope has nothing at all to do with, with the content. Our first hope is that it brings people in who wouldn't otherwise come in and understand themselves as, as being welcome in a rare books or special collections library. Um, too often, places like ours have reinforced this, this bad idea that only certain people um, get to use these materials. And my feeling is that, and, and this is a feeling that's shared by my colleagues as well, is that, um, you know, when you deny people an opportunity to interact with these materials, you're denying them an opportunity to understand themselves um, as something that they might, that, that might be new to them as, you know, scholars, as uh, creative um, people who, who, fully have a right to interact with these these rare items um but in terms of you know the, the content i think um you know i've already hit on some of those things i hope that people understand that uh you know the the phenomenon of witchcraft is is really a, a problem that was created by elite educated people um and i i think also you know probably uh equally the idea that um, that ideas that are contained in texts or in other media um, 
those things can very quickly become lethal and have a, a, a very dangerous force within a culture, um, especially when those ideas um, are largely imagined. They're not irrational ideas. There's a high degree of reasoning that goes into those ideas. Um, so they're not irrational, but they are dangerous because they are, um, they are utterly uh, imagined. You know, they are cut off from certain important, um, ways of verifying the truth of, of the claims. And, um, you know, we see that today. We have a, a former president who talks about, uh, you know, witch hunts against him and yet who ironically is one of the great purveyors of misinformation, um, you know, uh, and, and has had an enormous influence on the public in, in helping a certain portion of people believe that that misinformation is in fact true information. That's well, very much like witch belief um, in, in my view. Right. And well, we hope people will go and check out the, the books at Trinity College and learn more. You said from uh, 3 to 5 p.m. today, but you can also yes. check them out uh, beyond just Halloween. You've been listening to Eric Johnson DeBoffrey, who's the Rare Books and Special Collections Librarian at the Watkinson Library at Trinity College. Thank you so much for uh, letting us experience this text through radio today. Thank you so much, Catherine. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Halloween and spooky season is over before we know it, but we want to give you another fall to winter activity to look forward to, especially for you bird lovers. We have Emma Gregg, who is part of the Project Feeder Watch at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and she's here to tell us about their new project, Project Feeder Watch. Thank you so much, Emma, to, uh, for joining us this morning. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I know we have a very short time right now, but can you tell us really quickly, what is Feeder Watch and how can people get involved? Yeah, Feeder Watch is a winter bird counting program that starts tomorrow. So I was always bummed when Halloween was over, but... 
Theater Watch begins November 1st. So you can sign up and what you do is you count the birds that come to your yard, whether you have a feeder or not. So it's a, a super easy program to get involved with. And what kind of data is being collected? Like, what are you looking for? People are counting the birds and identifying them. So it's a uh, builds a data set that really helps us understand bird population trends over time. And do participants need to, or what do they need to do to participate? Is anything specific they're looking for or anything they need to set up or do they just need a feeder? You know, they don't even need a feeder. Okay. All they, yeah, I know, despite the name Feeder Watch, you don't actually need a feeder to participate. All you need is to take a little bit of time now and then. It doesn't even take that much time. It's very flexible. And look out your windows and learn the birds that are around your home. And I think that can be intimidating to some folks, but I always like to uh, tell people this piece of information I learned from feeder watch data, which is that the average number of species that comes to a person's home is 11. So you can learn the 11 bird species that are hanging out around your home and participate. It's no I, problem. I have been using the Merlin app and it always, uh, it always shocks me how many birds are in my yard or types of birds. So can you give us a specific example of how this data has been used in the past? We know what have you learned from it? And what has yeah. it told us? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, th there have been over 40 papers written from feeder watch data. So oh, wow. there are so many different things we've learned. But some of the, the cool things, well, you know, honestly, I think the biggest theme that comes from it, whether you're looking at disease or invasive species or range changes, is that what we do in our yards, our behavior impacts birds. And it does so in all kinds of different ways. And so that's the theme of what we're learning, even though there are all kinds of different ways in which that plays out. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on very quickly to tell our listeners about Project Feeder Watch. So we hope uh, you'll join Emma on the journey of bird watching and bird data gathering. Emma Gregg of Project Feeder Watch from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening and happy Halloween.